Okay, so over the last few talks that I've given here, I've mentioned the theme of transition a few times, partly because it feels like here at the Forest Refuge, we're constantly in transition. Every day people are arriving and others are leaving. And the other day I had the image of this being like a giant kaleidoscope with all these patterns of yogis forming and reforming. And that's true tonight too. Some of you have just arrived and some of you like me will soon be leaving. And as I mentioned earlier, in the bigger picture, tonight is New Year's Eve. 2018 is about to come to an end and 2019 is about to begin. And on one level, this is just an abstract concept but still, in a lot of cultures around the world, this is traditionally a time of reflection. So in that spirit, I thought to begin just by taking a few moments to reflect on this, by contemplating the year that's coming to an end, to contemplate the highs and the lows, and the ordinary times, at least some of them, that you experienced during 2018. Because for the purposes of this talk, it's important to touch into the whole spectrum of your experience. So begin by just taking a couple of moments to silently acknowledge maybe some of the more challenging times that you experienced in the last 12 months difficulties, stress, distress, dukkha of all kinds. And on the other side of the coin, just to touch into some of the pleasant times, the success, the happiness, the sukha that you experienced in 2018. And then again, not to leave out the mid-range, maybe you can get a sense of some of the more ordinary times, perhaps times of non-stress, quietness and ease, perhaps even here on retreat in these last few hours or days, weeks or months, just getting a sense of the more middle ordinary times. So I offer that as an experiment just to see from here in the peace and quiet of life here at the Forest Refuge, whether it might be easier to recall more of the whole range of your life experiences with at least some degree of ease and acceptance. Now, I don't have the skill of mind reading, but I'm guessing that there were probably at least a few times that you might bring to mind where there was a little bit of stickiness, either wanting or not wanting, but also many times where you could connect with those memories with some sense of ease, non-reactivity, spaciousness, equanimity. And it's the quality of equanimity that I wanted to explore in more detail tonight because equanimity is such a powerful and yet often overlooked quality of heart and mind. And it's one that helps us to navigate the transitions and life challenges of all kinds, the highs and lows, the ups and downs, the successes and failures. 
both in our meditation practice here on retreat and out there in our daily lives too. And this quality of equanimity is very highly valued in the Buddha's teachings, but almost completely undervalued in mainstream society. So much so that I'm guessing that most of us may not have even heard the word equanimity until we came into contact with the Dharma. So what is equanimity? As a very brief definition, just to get us started, it basically means balance. The balance of heart-mind that's completely at ease. There's no wanting anything and no resisting anything. It's the capacity to simply be with what is in a state of deep acceptance, peace. Now, it's possible some of you are thinking, well, that sounds great, but you have no idea what's going on in my life right now. And the idea of peace seems about as far away as the moon. But the Buddha was very clear that equanimity is a quality that can be cultivated. In fact, pretty much every practice that we're doing here leads eventually to this quality of balance and ease. And we can see this in the way that the quality of equanimity is included in so many of the Buddha's numbered lists. The way that the Buddha's teachings are organized, as I'm sure most of you know, is in terms of these lists so that we get a kind of Buddhism by the numbers. And so I thought tonight I might just briefly touch into some of those lists and you can think of this as a pop quiz to see how many of these uh, list factors you can remember. So first up is a list of the four Brahma-Vihara qualities that Caroline and I have both been exploring in our talks and morning reflections over the last month. These four are metta or kindness, karuna or compassion, mudita or appreciative joy, and upekka, equanimity. And equanimity shows up last in the list And I like to think that's because it's the balance between compassion and appreciative joy. So equanimity is what arises when we're able to fully meet both the joys and the sorrows of life equally. Another place that equanimity features highly is in the list of the seven factors of awakening. These are the seven skillful states of mind that arise when we've managed to free the mind from the hindrances. And when these seven awakening factors are completely in balance, they provide the best conditions for the deepest insights to arise. So a quick reminder, see how many you remember, mindfulness, investigation, energy, joy, (coughs) rapture, tranquility, samadhi or a stability of mind and equanimity and again equanimity comes last because it emerges out of the deep stability of mind from samadhi which is usually translated as concentration and samadhi comes about through releasing the hindrances the afflictive mind states So when the mind is at least temporarily free from greed, hatred, and delusion of all kinds, equanimity is the natural result. Then there's nothing to want and there's nothing to resist. So the mind rests, completely accepting and at peace. Equanimity is also a factor in the cultivation of the jhanas, the states of deep samadhi or absorption. And in the beginning levels of jhana, we experience mental happiness and bliss. But as the absorption deepens, each level becomes increasingly subtle and refined until by the fourth jhana, there's just the experience of profound equanimity. But equanimity is not only something that we develop in the specialized conditions of retreat. It's also something that we're encouraged to cultivate in daily life. For example, equanimity appears in the list of the 10 parami. 
And these are ten qualities of character that actually need the conditions of daily life to strengthen them. Qualities such as generosity, sila or ethical conduct, renunciation, wisdom, energy, patience, truthfulness, resolve, kindness or metta, and equanimity. So once again, equanimity appears last in that set of qualities too. So from that quick run-through of these different lists, we can see just how much equanimity is valued in the teachings. And also perhaps get a sense of there are different flavors or nuances in how that equanimity might be experienced. And tonight I wanted to mostly focus on equanimity in the context of insight practice because there's a powerful connection between the mental factor of equanimity and the liberating wisdom that's the goal of all of these teachings. So the Pali word upekka, which is usually translated as equanimity, literally means to look over. So it has a lot to do with seeing, with being in a position to see the bigger picture. And it links directly to insight or vipassana, which means clear seeing. So if we think of equanimity as literally to look over, to me it has resonance with an experience I've sometimes had when I've been hiking in the mountains. So after a lot of uphill effort to get up a steep slope, I finally get above the tree line and I can turn around and look out over where I just came and see the panorama of the whole countryside below. And suddenly I see where I came from in a whole new context. There's a sense of openness and expansiveness. I'm not just stuck in my small, narrow viewpoint anymore. And for me, that change of perspective is experienced as a moment of release, a feeling of the freedom that comes from seeing the bigger picture. So clear seeing is one aspect of equanimity. And so too is non-reactivity. The simple acceptance of whatever we're experiencing moment to moment to moment. But this non-reactivity is not as people sometimes fear about trying to become a kind of inert lump of stone. It's more about the capacity to respond rather than to react. So what's the difference between responding and reacting? To me, reactivity means being on autopilot and just lashing out according to my habitual, deeply conditioned patterns, which usually revolve around a strong sense of me at the center. Whereas responsiveness comes from attunement, It's a kind of listening to what is. And it's a more intuitive, embodied engagement. And usually there's more capacity to take in the perspective of other people alongside my own. And even though we might at least intellectually understand the value of equanimity, for many people it can be a challenging quality to embody more deeply. And this is partly because it's not a quality that's valued very much by mainstream society. So I I often joke that you don't hear people saying things like, wow, when I got to the airport early and found out my flight had been delayed six hours so that I was going to arrive at my destination at 1.30 in the morning, I just had so much equanimity. And people generally don't say, you know, I love listening to talkback radio because it gives my equanimity practice such a great workout. It's not really common to talk about equanimity at all in mainstream society because generally speaking, we tend to uh, value drama. We're almost addicted to the highs and lows of life. And we tend not to pay that much attention to the times when we're balanced and at ease because those times are not threatening to our survival. 
So this inbuilt negativity bias that I've mentioned a few times means that we tend to overlook times of ease and calm and quiet. And there's another reason that equanimity isn't so valued these days. And again, I think it's part of the mainstream conditioning that I talked about last week. How dominant capitalist culture puts so much emphasis on individualism and materialism. So there's a lot of societal pressure to have and to get and to gain and to attain and to achieve and to succeed and to become someone special. And underlying all of that motivation is a need to be in control. But with equanimity, to some extent, equanimity arises out of the ability to relinquish control. It comes from attuning to how things actually are instead of how we'd like them to be. So uh, as an example of this, I'd like to share a true story from someone I knew here at IMS, a yogi by the name of Lorna Kelly. She was a long-term meditator at both the retreat center and here at the Forest Refuge. And when I knew her, she was in her 60s. And she was always impeccably dressed and she always had a bright pink streak in her hair. So some of you may know her or have seen her, been on retreat with her. She died a couple of years ago at the age of 70. And she'd had a pretty interesting life with a lot of different phases to it. Before she started meditating in the insight tradition, she'd spent a few years exploring various religions And in the 1980s, she became dissatisfied with her high-powered career in New York. And she decided to go to Egypt on a spiritual quest, perhaps following in the footsteps of the Desert Fathers. There was a particular holy place in the Sinai Desert that she wanted to visit. And apparently it was quite a way into the desert. So she hired herself a camel and a driver For some reason, the camel's name was Bob Marley. (laughs) (laughs) And the three of them, Bob Marley and the driver and Lorna, set off into the sand dunes for what was going to be quite a long journey. But after some period of time, the camel driver suddenly jumped off the camel and just ran away. And Laura was horrified, and she begged them to come back. But the driver just yelled over his shoulder, the camel knows the way, and then he disappeared. (laughs) And Lorna was left alone on the camel, plodding through the endless desert. And she had absolutely no idea what to do. And at first she found herself going through waves of anger at the camel driver, and then anger at herself for trusting him. And next came waves of fear and despair, followed by the certain knowledge that she was going to die all alone in the desert. But miraculously, at some point, all of those different emotions gave way to total acceptance. And she thought to herself, okay, I wanted a spiritual quest. That's what I came here for. I guess this is it. This is the end of my life. And she experienced a sense of complete and utter peace. And then a few moments later, the camel arrived at her planned destination. And she realized that the camel driver had been right. And the camel did know the way. So she wrote about this experience. In short order, I had known the anticipation of adventure, the terror of abandonment, the desperation of helplessness, the exaltation of spiritual grandiosity, the inevitability of surrender, and yet through it all, the simplicity of the journey. Does that sound anything like being on retreat at the forest refuge? Because sometimes we do experience those intense storms of reactivity and resistance and desperate attempts to get what we want. But if we can stay present with it for long enough, at some point, something lets go. There's a surrendering to what is, 
And at least for a moment or two, we might taste the ease and peace of deep equanimity. So equanimity can be experienced in a few different ways, as clear seeing, as non-reactivity, as surrender. And all of these are capacities of the heart and mind that we can train in, that we can cultivate through meditation practice, starting with mindfulness itself. Because pretty much every definition of mindfulness we can think of has equanimity built into it implicitly. So here are just a few examples from some contemporary insight meditation teachers. Gil Fransdell defines mindfulness as the cultivation of clear, stable, and non-judgmental awareness. And Sharon Salzberg and Joseph Goldstein in the Insight Meditation Workbook say that mindfulness means being aware of what is going on as it actually arises, not being lost in our conclusions or judgments about it, our fantasies of what it means, our hopes, our fears, our, or our aversion. Rather, mindfulness helps us see nakedly and directly this is what is happening right now. And Bhikkhu Analyo, who, as most of you know, wrote Satipatthana, The Direct Path to Realization, he condenses mindfulness into four words, keep calmly knowing change. And then he abbreviates that to KC, KC, keep calmly knowing change. And it's the calmly piece that invites equanimity. And I just wanted to highlight that connection between mindfulness and equanimity because for some people, equanimity might sound like a remote quality, a far-off goal that may be achieved at some distant point in the future. But every moment of mindfulness is simultaneously strengthening our capacity for non-reactivity. So there's a reciprocal relationship between mindfulness and equanimity. Paying attention with a non-judgmental attitude strengthens equanimity. And equanimity in turn makes it easier to pay attention with a non-judgmental attitude. And we can see a similar reciprocal relationship between equanimity and wisdom too. And by wisdom here I mean insight. The capacity to see the three universal characteristics of anicca, dukkha, and anatta with more and more clarity. So as a quick reminder, anicca, dukkha, anatta refers to the truth that everything we experience is impermanent, it's imperfect, and it's impersonal. And again, when we can see these characteristics more deeply, they powerfully support the peace of equanimity because we understand that everything is constantly changing. None of it not can give us lasting satisfaction and none of it is our fault. The opposite is also true. The more we resist the truth of these three insights, the less equanimity we experience and the more we suffer. So the degree of equanimity we're experiencing gives us very clear feedback about whether we are living in alignment with wisdom or not. So I'd like to go into a bit more detail now about how these three characteristics show up, particularly in relation to our meditation practice. So seeing some of the ways that we commonly resist them, which leads to more suffering and also how we can let go of that resistance so that we can experience more ease and equanimity. So the first one, anicca, impermanence. And here we can see how often we get caught in resisting the natural ebbs and flows of the practice. Unconsciously, we often believe that we should be able to achieve some kind of steady state happiness 
and then we can turn on cruise control and just stay there for the rest of the retreat. But because of the truth of anicca or impermanence, at some point we find ourselves metaphorically swerving off the highway and bumping along some potholed old country road. And usually then our response is to desperately want to get our earlier happiness back and then to react with anger towards ourselves in the practice if that doesn't happen. And that gives rise to self-judgment, to restlessness and worry, followed by doubt and self-doubt. In other words, the classical multiple hindrance attack but we can save ourselves a lot of angst if we understand that because of anicca, impermanence, these different phases of the practice are inevitable. They're natural, they're to be expected. So in some of the practice meetings with some of you, I've been talking about what are sometimes referred to in the practice as cycles of purity and purification. And this is the understanding that there are natural rhythms in the way the practice unfolds. So the so-called purification stage refers to the various challenging emotions and moods and mind states that come up for us to practice with. And as we learn how to meet these painful formations with equanimity, they eventually release. And then we find ourselves in the so-called purity stage, where the mind is temporarily at least clear and open and equanimous. And sometimes this purity stage is accompanied by a few moments of bliss. And then the natural tendency is to think, at last, finally I've got it. This is great. And this is how it's going to be for the rest of the retreat. I think you all know how that story ends. Usually what happens next in the next sitting or a couple of hours later or perhaps the next day, it feels like everything falls apart and we're right back where we started. We find ourselves caught in yet another multiple hindrance attack, sometimes with seemingly even more intensity than before. So once again, we're back in a purification cycle. And we stay there until we can develop enough equanimity to let those painful mental states dissolve, which then allows the next experience of the purity cycle to come up, and so on. The more often this happens, the clearer it becomes that these are just natural phases of the practice. But if we try to fix or hold on to either of these kind of pendulum swings, we often find ourselves going for a wild ride. So instead of trying to hold on, it's much better to simply try to make space and to know, okay, now it's like this, now it's like this, now this. And eventually the pendulum swings get a bit less dramatic. And we do find ourselves spending more time in the states of ease and clarity and equanimity. So now we come to the second of these three universal characteristics, which is dukkha. The understanding that all experience, because it's impermanent, is imperfect and unsatisfactory. And again, this understanding this insight challenges our primal desire to never experience anything unpleasant ever again and to only experience pleasantness forever and ever amen and i spoke a lot last week about uh, experiencing this resistance to dukkha in my previous talk so tonight i'll just focus more on a couple of strategies I found in my own practice that can help the resistance to dukkha to release. So often when we first contact some kind of unpleasant experience, some form of dukkha, the initial response is just to react, to clamp down usually, to contract, to tighten or to brace and resist the experience. 
And when mindfulness is strong, we might be able to feel that resistance very directly in the body. Perhaps the jaw clenches, or the shoulders hunch, or the arms stiffen and brace in some way. And that bodily reaction can be a powerful feedback signal to remind us to relax, to soften around the contraction and try to give it some space. So in support of this, I use a mantra that I borrowed from the Zen teacher, Charlotte Joko Beck, and I think Caroline also mentioned this the other night. The mantra is A-B-C, which stands for A Bigger Container. And it has to be very simple because when we're in the grip of reactivity, we need something very simple to remind us to make a bigger container, to make space around that tightening so that the energy of it doesn't feel quite as powerful. So it's uh, the analogy is of a wild horse that if we put it in a small corral, it goes crazy. But if we let it out into a bigger pasture, the energy is the same, but the intensity doesn't have the same impact. So ABC is this invitation to make a bigger container. And in actual practice, how do we do that? Well, the short answer is in whatever ways we can, either literally, physically, or metaphorically and imaginatively. So for myself, when I first feel that pulse of tightening around a painful reaction, I try to give it space by making more physical room. So I might sit up a bit straighter and deliberately try to let the shoulders soften. I might open the chest and take a few deeper breaths just to make more space in the body. Depending on what the reaction is, if it's very intense, I might even open my eyes and look around the room so that I'm connecting to the bigger space in the room. If even that doesn't work, then I might look out of the window and see if I can connect to the sky because the sky is a powerful visual reminder of vastness and of the relative insignificance of our own problems. So as Caroline mentioned the other day, we might think of Wyoming or Montana or any other physical environment that you're aware of that reminds you of spaciousness. In Australia, I think of the Nullarbor Desert. Sometimes, though, and for some people, visualizing or imagining isn't, um, doesn't feel like the right approach. And so sometimes I might just try to come into the physical energy of the body and see if I can send a kind of a fine vibrational energy of light or warmth to the area that's feeling stuck or tight. And I imagine this fine vibrational energy just very gently dissolving the tightening of the reaction. So these are just a few suggestions for creating a bigger container. But I encourage you, if it feels useful, to explore it for yourself and find your own ways, your own methods, anything that helps to release the reactivity of dukkha and to strengthen equanimity. And one of the advantages we have here being on retreat at the forest refuge is that uh, we have the support of the natural environment. And this can be so helpful when we're coming into contact with perhaps some very deep and strong, deep-rooted conditioning. And then we might need to take in the bigger container of the forest outside. And this... uh, in Japanese culture, this is known as shinrin-yoku, which apparently means taking in the forest atmosphere or forest bathing. And I love that as a concept. I didn't know that it was an actual thing that you can do. Apparently, there's been a lot of research on it in the ni- since the 1980s in Japan and South Korea. And there is actually scientific literature that... Uh, indicates the health benefits of spending time under the canopy of a living forest. 
So you may have already been doing that, but for myself, I found it very helpful, particularly at times when I was trying to navigate deep and intense uh, conditioning. Sometimes my practice would involve just going out and lying on a rock and looking up at the sky through the branches of the trees, sometimes for hours at a time. And every time I did this, I found that I could eventually go back to the hall with much more calm and a much stronger capacity to manage whatever was coming up. And it helped to support insight into the third of these three universal characteristics, which is anatta, the insight that everything is impersonal, It's not happening to a fixed, solid sense of self, usually located at the center of the universe. So to get a sense of that, this morning I spoke briefly about trying to stay with the immediacy of our experience as closely as possible, just the raw physical sensations and the feeling tone, before we add that sense of I to it and often then get caught in mental proliferation and narratives of all kinds. So example, for example, even as you're sitting here now, you might just be quietly noticing flow of experience, sounds, sensations, mental activity, thoughts, emotions, moods, mind states. And for some of the time, there's probably just a flow. And then every now and then, something grabs us and we hook, we catch onto it and we identify with that experience and suddenly we're caught in a story of I and me and mine and who I am as I spoke of last week. So in relation to this I often think back to Ajahn Buddha Dasa and his, uh, the Thai forest tradition meditator and his uh, response to a question about how to summarize the Buddha's teachings. And he came up with the statement, nothing is to be clung to as I or mine, which is in the suttas, but it's very pithy, condensing the whole of the teachings. Nothing is to be clung to as I or mine. And I remember the first time I read that and I could feel almost a sense of panic in my mind. What, nothing? And then I noticed the bargaining, but this this must be okay, right? Surely this. No, it does say nothing, but what about this? All of that bargaining and scrambling and then I finally realized it's not the, it's the clinging that's being pointed to, not the nothing. So it's a way to challenge our self-views in particular, all those beliefs about who I am. And the challenge there is that we tend to cling to them so tightly that we don't even see that they are beliefs. They become who we are. So to sometimes catching that whole mechanism in action can help it to release So I wanted to just give a very brief overview of what's sometimes referred to as the chain of cognition. And this chain of cognition starts with simply noticing contact at any of the sense doors, a sight, a sound, a smell, physical sensation, a taste, some kind of mental activity, there's contact. And then there's feeling tone, Vedana, So each of those contacts is automatically registered as pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. So Caroline spoke about this a few weeks ago. Then if there's not a lot of mindfulness, we move into perception, recognizing things, naming them, and then these quickly give rise to mental formations, all of the conditioning, and then to excessive thinking, and proliferation, and often to afflictive mind states, to papancha, to use the Pali term. So the British academic Pali scholar and meditation teacher John Peacock says that the term papancha has connotations of spreading out, and he describes papancha as thought running amok and becoming obsessional, 
usually based around a strong sense of I and me and mine. And the narratives that are created are usually about the past or the future, much more than the present. And this kind of thinking often takes on a life of its own that just keeps us spinning around and around and around, ruminating about the same old issues over and over again. Anybody had that experience? (laughs) It's amazingly common. But, and the good news is that it's not inevitable. If we pay careful attention to this chain of cognition, we can see how this papancha comes into being and how we can stop it. So the first couple of stages of contact at the sense doors and Vedana or feeling tone, we don't have a lot of control over. They're biological and they just come from having a human body. They're just impersonal, so the body feels a sensation It automatically is known as pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And at this point, there isn't a sense of me who's experiencing this. That comes next with the chain of perception or sanya. And perception is the capacity of the mind to recognize something. And it does this through comparing it to similar experiences in the past and then by giving it a name. So at this point, time and language enter the process, along with a sense of someone who's remembering and recognizing and naming whatever the experience is. So this is the point in the chain of cognition where, according to John Peacock, it, quote, gets infected by the I virus. In other words, a sense of I is inserted into the experience and there starts to be a sense of me here and the world out there. And this sense of me gets repeated over and over and solidified and complexified into the next stage of the chain, which is sankara or formations. And this is sometimes translated as volitional formations because they're constructed, they're fabricated, they're concocted. So now the simple perception of someone who is experiencing something (coughs) is spun out and it reinforces a stronger and stronger sense of me and my story and my history and my narrative. Now, I'm describing it in a very nice, tidy, linear way, but in real life, this causal chain is not one single strand. It's more a series of multiple feedback loops that form a a web, a tangle of different strands that all reinforce each other into a giant knot of fixed views and opinions, which we then take to be reality, not realizing that we have constructed the whole thing. Or as the Buddha vividly describes it, how we create a thicket of views, a wilderness of views, a contortion of views, a writhing of views, a fetter of views, accompanied by suffering, distress, despair, and fever. They do not lead to to disenchantment, dispassion, cessation, to calm, direct knowledge, full awakening, unbinding. So learning how to undo this thicket of views is how we come to calm and to direct knowledge and to full awakening. And that's why the teachings put so much emphasis on releasing the energy of our stories. So this morning I used Gil Fronstel's analogy of the wheel and I suggested to try to stay away from the outer rim of the wheel, which is the papancha, the proliferation, and keep coming back to the center of the hub. Just the simplicity of the breath and the body sensations because here we can find at least some relative calm. And when we're not agitated, we can see more clearly. And when we can see more clearly, we experience more calm and ease and equanimity. So then we get to set up a different kind of chain, 
a positive chain reaction that ultimately leads all the way to full awakening. So as the practice matures, we need to also be paying attention to the absence of the afflictive emotions. Because this helps the positive chain reaction to get some momentum. The more we can experience these moments of deep ease and equanimity when the afflictive emotions are absent, then we get a direct taste of this quality of heart and mind that so powerfully supports awakening. And then Nibbana starts to seem within the range of human capability. So coming back to Ajahn Buddhadasa again, in my own practice I've appreciated how he describes meditation as a process of cultivating moments of what he calls temporary Nibbana until eventually they convert to complete Nibbana, full awakening complete freedom of heart and mind. You may have heard this passage before, but I think it's worth uh, remembering, worth keeping in mind. He says, temporary nirvana nourishes all sentient beings. If defilements were with us day and night without ceasing, who could ever stand them? Living things would either die or become insane first and then die. One survives because there are periods when the fires of defilements do not burn. Periodical or temporary nirvana keeps all of us alive and well, and it's a nourishing condition, normal to life. Why don't we know or feel thankful for this kind of nirvana? Fortunately, it is our instinct to acquire it. Whatever has any heart and mind will look for periods when the defilements or strong desires are absent. We instinctively go in search of spans of time when the mind is free from defilements and desire. Whenever this happens, a little nirvana always comes in and the phenomena will continue until one learns how to convert it into permanent or complete nirvana. So I find that quite encouraging that we do have this natural orientation towards freedom and our work is to keep releasing what gets in the way and reorienting ourselves to equanimity. Those times when there's no wanting or craving in the mind and no not wanting or resisting either because equanimity is the launching pad for our deepest insights to occur. And with this understanding, Nibbana is not something lofty or remote to be experienced in some imaginary far distant future. It's available in moments right here on this retreat whenever we can let go of craving and resisting and identifying with experience. Now this is quite an advanced level of practice. But the more we can learn how to let go of clinging to our views and opinions and beliefs and concepts, even about what the practice is and how it's supposed to be unfolding, and instead can keep opening to our actual experience, then the practice starts to develop its own momentum. And the stages of the progress of insight begin to unfold quite naturally, even effortlessly. So to get a sense of that, I'd like to finish with a quote from Joseph Goldstein. It's quite long, but it might give some helpful perspective on the various phases that our practice naturally goes through as we keep developing this factor of equanimity. He says, as each of our insights mature within us, we pass through various stages. In some stages, the mind is filled with exhilarating rapture when we see clearly for the first time the very rapid rise and fall of phenomena. In other stages, there is a great clarity when we understand more deeply what is the path and what is not. Here, we learn not to cling 
even to the special meditative states of rapture and happiness. We also experience periods of profound distress where we see that nothing at all in the conditioned existence can provide a true and lasting happiness. But if we persevere on the path, we reach the culmination of mundane meditative insights, which is the powerful state of equanimity about all formations. This is a state of deep delight born of peace. Here, the mind is not disturbed at all by the alteration of pleasant and unpleasant experience. We abide in a smooth current of awareness without even the slightest micro-movements of reaction in the mind. At this point, the equanimity has balanced all the other factors of mind and the practice is rolling along all by itself. This stage of stable equanimity is likened to the mind of an arhant, which is unshakable with regard to anything arising in the field of consciousness. It's useful to remember that one isn't actually an arhant yet, but stable equanimity is a taste of what the Buddha repeated many times in the Satipatthana Sutta, and one abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. So on this eve of transition from the year 2018 to the year 2019, may all of us learn to strengthen equanimity more and more fully so that we can experience temporary Nibbana, converting eventually to complete Nibbana for the benefit of all beings everywhere. May there be peace. Thank you for your attention. Let's just sit quietly for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.